Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court here in Washington. And joining me from New York is co-host Natalie Rodriguez. How's it going, Natalie? Hey, Jimmy. Pretty good. Enjoying the the sun being out and the weather starting to kind of warm up. (laughs) A little bit, which is nice. Although I spent a lot of the week kind of indoors trying to make out what was being said on the Supreme Court's oral argument feed on C-SPAN. I don't know what happened. I think the C-SPAN feed, like most of us, is getting a little bit tired of the pandemic and, you know, the rails are starting to come off. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way. Just, you know, my personal life. But yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully we can hold it together through this very action-packed episode. I mean, it's been a week. There was a lot happening at the Supreme Court starting on Monday. Yeah, I mean, so like this was an argument week. But I'll be honest, we're not even really going to touch on the arguments this week just because so much happened. And... Oddly enough, the Monday orders list was kind of like the big news of the week. That's right. In a, in a normal week, you'll see, you know, the orders list come out on Monday and it'll just be a list of cases that the court decided not to hear. That was a little bit different this week when the Supreme Court decided to take up five new cases. Um, I'm going to talk about three consolidated cases among those five that were pretty interesting. And they involve a challenge to what was in the Trump administration, but is now the Biden administration's gag rule prohibiting physicians from referring patients to abortion providers. So obviously this rule from the Trump administration is still on the books. Uh, it's a DHS regulation that bars doctors who receive federal funds for planning Uh, for family planning services from helping patients access abortion services. So this regulation was upheld by the Ninth Circuit, but it was blocked in Maryland by the Fourth Circuit. But it it does raise the question, will the court even hear this case in the fall when the court hears these other cases that it decided to take up? Uh, Because, you know, in that time, the Biden administration theoretically could rescind the rule. And in fact, uh, Biden has told HHS to review and consider rescinding the rule and any other regulations that, quote, impose undue restrictions on the use of federal funds or women's access to complete medical information. So, you know, this is an evolving thing. We'll keep an eye on it. But like other uh, Trump administration policies that were being reviewed at the Supreme Court, we could potentially see it being moot before it actually comes up for argument. And I think that's the case for the case that you're going to talk about, right, Natalie? Yes, it it was a bit of a mini theme, I feel like, in the orders list here. Um, The other uh, case that the court has decided to, one of the other cases the court has decided to take up is a review of the Department of Homeland Security's so-called immigrant wealth test. Uh, So this rule makes it harder to get green cards for those who are considered under this test to be more likely to use public benefits. Um, If this sounds familiar, it is because this issue has come up before the court previously, three times actually, um, in regards to the court lifting lower court injunctions that had blocked the rule. This time, though, they are finally reviewing the order on the merits in a case involving New York, Connecticut, and Vermont, which last summer won a Second Circuit ruling blocking uh, DHS from enforcing the rule in those states. Uh, Again here, though, Biden has ordered a review of the rule, uh, along with a number of Trump-era immigration policies, and that's actually expected to conclude in April. So whether this, uh, this rule will make it to the next set of oral arguments, we shall see. But in addition to taking up some of these big issues, the court also kind of cleared the deck a little bit on some of these holdover cases from the Trump era. Natalie, do you want to talk about one of those for us? Yes. So um, 
Actually, one was uh, regarding Trump's request to halt enforcement of a grand jury subpoena from the Manhattan DA uh, for his tax records and other records. Again, also, if you're getting deja vu, this case has come before the court uh, before <laughs> in, in, in different ways. Um, so Monday, they said, no, we're not going to review this this request, uh, which basically allowed the Manhattan DA's office to move forward. And today, Thursday, when we're recording, uh, we got news that the Manhattan DA's office has indeed received copies of President uh, Trump's tax and business records as a result of the court not taking up the case earlier in the week. Uh, we could still see this case pop up again, uh, even up to the high court. There's some other legal avenues that a Trump uh, could take. But for now, it looks like uh, the Manhattan DA's investigation is moving forward. Yeah, that was also a theme that the Supreme Court kind of is over this period of <laughs> Trump administration related litigation. And that includes uh, a number of election cases that had long since been pending that the court finally took the formal step of like tossing away. It was pretty obvious that they were at this late stage had no interest in getting involved in election litigation, uh, but they actually took the step of formally dismissing a number of Republican uh, petitions challenging the results in battleground states that Biden won. But interestingly enough, among those cases that it threw out was a challenge uh, to the extension of the deadline for mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania. Now, if you recall, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ordered a three-day extension of the deadline for mail-in ballots due to, obviously, postal delays at the time. Um, and earlier, just some justices had expressed interest in, in, in revisiting this issue because they thought it was a clear you know, case where the Pennsylvania Supreme Court had kind of usurped the authority of the state legislature to kind of set election rules. Um, but obviously, the Supreme Court just ended up turning this one down. And that triggered a dissent by Justices Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and Neil Gorsuch, who indicated that they would have taken up these cases for, you know, future elections where they say it's clear you have to have, you know, a clear authority on who can change the election rules. Um, and they obviously feel that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court usurped that authority. What was notable was uh, a solo dissent from Justice Thomas that kind of went a step further than Justice Alito and Gorsuch's dissent and kind of went through a lot of the rhetoric surrounding, you know, potential fraud in mail-in ballots that, you know, for instance, President Donald Trump has been uh, spouting since uh, the fall election and indeed even before then. And, and Thomas warned about the danger of fraud, saying it's now time to settle the election because in the post-election litigation context, you know, in the weeks and days after an election, you know, that's incapable of testing allegations of systemic maladministration, voter suppression, or fraud that go to the heart of public confidence in election results. I should just say quickly that he acknowledges that you know, the, the, this issue about late arriving ballots in Pennsylvania, it wasn't even enough to necessarily change the results in that state, let alone the whole election. And he also says that there's no evidence of widespread fraud, but that's not good enough, he says. Quote, an election free from strong evidence of systemic fraud is not alone sufficient for election confidence. Also important is the assurance that fraud will not go undetected. So make of that what you will, but a lot of critics suggested that he was repeating uh, Trump's rhetoric about election fraud where there is no evidence of any. Um, but again, this appears to be the final bow put on this chapter of election litigation at the Supreme Court. 
So this was not the only time uh, that Thomas was in the spotlight this week. He was actually also the author of the sole opinion to come out of the court. Uh, Brownback v. King, it involved um, a violent encounter between a man and two federal task force members who had mistook him for a fugitive. Um, The case involved questions of qualified immunity or, you know, what protections basically for for federal workers um, such as the task force members and uh, the federal tort claims act so a a bit of a technical case and we're not going to get completely into uh, kind of the interplay there though if federal tort claims act is up your alley i highly suggest (laughs) uh, checking this this opinion out um i will say all all three of you yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) uh no no we love we love the federal tort claims act (laughs) <laughs> really, truly. Um, <laughs> I will say that, uh, you know, essentially the case was a win for qualified immunity protections. It overturned a Sixth Circuit decision that had said that the workers were um, not protected um, by qualified immunity uh, because of the the interplay of the with the T- Federal Tort Claims Act. Um, so, yeah, uncontrolled. Essentially, though, an uncontroversial decision since it was a unanimous opinion from the court. There was another Thursday development um, with a petition from an affirmative action group that's suing Harvard University over its race-conscious admissions policy. Uh, The group asked the court to hear its appeal of a first circuit ruling that essentially affirmed the dismissal of its uh, lawsuit against Harvard. Um, And this has essentially been long engineered to get the court to examine the issue of the use of race in college admissions. And I'm sure we'll probably be covering the case more as we get uh, the brief in opposition from the government um, as well as the school. And we could potentially see the justices express interest in the case, although that is probably a ways away. So we'll be keeping an eye on this one. Um, But looking forward to next week, there will continue to be more oral arguments as the court rounds out its February slash March argument session. Uh, Among the cases that it's going to hear is kind of a nerdy but interesting uh, intellectual property dispute, which involves the constitutionality of the U.S. Patent Trial and Appeals Board. Um, The PTAB was created in 2011 to kind of streamline the review of patents that were being asserted in infringement litigation. So, you know, if you're sued for patent infringement, this was essentially a fast track way of getting an administrative ruling that essentially throws out those patents and thus you escape any kind of infringement liability. So patent holders don't like these, this PTAB, um, people accused of patent infringement happened to like it. And so we had, uh, you know, patent owners that had their patents thrown out, challenged the constitutionality of these boards because they say that the administrative law judges who serve on the PTAB uh, were not constitutionally appointed. They say that um, the they are in fact principal officers and thus have to go to through, you know, uh, nomination by the president, confirmation by the Senate, but instead are appointed in reality by the USPTO, which they say is a no-no. So the Supreme Court in, you know, uh, to make a long story short, is going to review the constitutionality of how these PTAB judges are appointed. And it could potentially give us yet further insight into, you know, what this current conservative Supreme Court majority thinks about things like agency independence. And we've seen recent rulings on this same issue where the court is essentially trying to enforce the 
U.S. Appointments Clause of the Constitution and, you know, make these administrative officers more less independent and more answerable to things like firings or appointments by political appointees. Definitely excited to, to listen in on that one. Um, also next week, uh, the court will be taking up a, a very big Voting Rights Act case. Actually, it's two consolidated cases, I should say, um, involving Arizona, uh, two Arizona voting regulations um, that are alleged to discriminate against Native American, Hispanic, and African American voters in the state. Um, you know, it's kind of being seen as really the biggest uh, potential challenge to what remains of the Voting Rights Act in, in quite a while. Um, so, we'll, you know, we'll see how the court kind of handles this. I will say the Biden administration kind of circling us back to the beginning of this episode has backpedaled on the previous administration's support of Arizona in this case. So I don't know how much that will kind of factor in here uh, for arguments. Definitely one to check back in on after oral arguments next week. We'll have definitely a lot to go over. Um, but I think that pretty much does it for this week, Natalie, right? I mean, we oh, got through that it. That was a whirlwind. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot of news, but, um, you know, that's what happens when you cover the Supreme Court. Things are coming at you from all different angles, but um, glad we were able to break it all down for you guys. Thanks. Thanks, Jimmy. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporters this week, Alyssa Aquino, James Nani, Chris Villani, and Jeff Overly. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please write us a review. <laughs>